Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. People don't invest in deep tech because they think it's capital intensive, but in fact, sometimes they become even more capital efficient than SaaS companies or consumer tech. There's a reputation that these deep scientists, founders, shouldn't be the CEO. But what we found is that when they can transition to start thinking about building their company as an engineering problem with that same mentality that they trained for at MIT, and then it's a great way to build a company. Habib Haddad and Calvin Chin are the managing partners of the E14 Fund, an early-stage deep tech fund that invests exclusively in startups from the MIT Media Lab community. The Media Lab is a futuristic and mysterious place, renowned for its interdisciplinary research. Its departments have names such as molecular machines, synthetic neurobiology, or tangible media. Over the years, the lab and its alumni gave birth to innovations such as touchscreens, e-ink, scratch, and even fun things like Lego Mindstorms and the Guitar Hero game. They have also been a source of inspiration for sci-fi movies like Minority Report and Big Hero 6. In this episode, Habib and Calvin describe the journey that brought them to launch the E14 Fund in 2013 and the importance of the community built around the Media Lab and the fund. They discuss how they work with founders, supporting them before it's a startup ready for investments, how to grow the investment in deep tech, and how many startups are both less capital intensive and more efficient than many think. We end with some ideas on what differentiates the best founders from others. Calvin, Habib, great to have you today. Thanks for having us. Everybody has heard about MIT, but not everybody knows that MIT also has an investment fund and how it ties into many of the technologies that come out of the labs there. Before we dive into like how you work and what you do, let's talk about how we connected. Maybe starting with Calvin, because I think we met a while ago now in China when you were doing uh, your own startup. Yeah, that's right. So my background is a part of four different startups, two in the US and enterprise software. And then I spent 10 years in China, first with a semiconductor foundry startup, and then with a fintech startup. And I think I probably met you with my last startup. Yeah, that was the fintech one. And uh, I think you were named the technology pioneer by uh, the World Economic Forum, right? Yeah, that's right. It was a really exciting time. We were the first Chinese company to get that. Fantastic. I was pleasantly surprised to see that you crossed borders again, and uh, you went into VC and one of the founders of the E14 fund. Yeah, that's right. So I came back to the US in 2014 which seemed to be pretty good timing, transitioned some of the investment work that I'd been doing for a single family office to China, and then caught up with an old friend of mine, Habib. And Habib and I had known each other. Now I think it's about a dozen years. And he was doing some really exciting work with MIT. So I would visit him and we started hatching this plan that, that we'll tell you a little bit more about soon. From an introduction from Cyril, the founder of uh, Hacks, a uh, part of the SOSV family. And uh, you showed me around MIT during one of my visits and you told me about the Ethin Fund. But your history with uh, Boston and MIT goes uh, way back and uh, your connection to our fund also goes way back, right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, originally I'm from Lebanon. So I moved uh, to the US about 20 years ago. Initially for grad school uh, at USC in computer vision. And then very quickly after graduation, I had access to the bulletin board at MIT and all the stuff that you see for jobs. And I found uh, people working on amazing science on computer vision in one of the labs who were looking to spin it off. So I flew to Boston, met with the folks. I got super excited to join them and then stuck around Boston building uh, this startup. Then after that, joined a semiconductor company for some time and then worked on my, uh, my linguistics startup that we exited. To Yahoo in 2011. 
after which I decided to jump to the world of investing, initially in the Middle East, and then after that uh, in Boston. So how did you come back to Boston in an investment role like that? Yeah, so first my jump to the Middle East was actually quite interesting. That was the time when, 2011, if you remember, this was a time when the Spring Revolution was happening. And completely coincidentally, I, I found myself very involved in that because a lot of my friends were entrepreneurs and techies and founders became leaders uh, on the ground. And so I was very much you know, engaged and involved in what's happening. But then at some point, I saw there was disappointment with the outcome. But then I saw this raw energy, this, uh, this excitement of people wanting to build things, but also wanting to consume things locally made in their own language. And so this was obviously, to me, the right formula for startup creation for the region. So I moved to the Middle East, set up what ultimately became one of the first venture funds in the region, focus on Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia, and Turkey. And then as I was doing that, I still maintained strong connections at MIT and the Media Lab. And I was helping out the director at that time and the faculty thinking about uh, venture creation uh, and thinking about setting up this small program that is not, by the way, by MIT, but in collaboration with, with MIT to help recent graduates take their ideas into the world, which ultimately led to the creation of the fund that Calvin and I are around today. Another uh, thing I'd like to mention, uh, because MIT was quoted a few times in uh, previous episodes of this podcast, and it was actually quoted in the first episode and in the most recent uh, recorded episode by two people who spent some time at MIT coming from Europe. And they mentioned how being part of the MIT environment or the ecosystem totally changed their mindset about entrepreneurship. They were coming from environments where creating startups was not a norm or bridging from being a scientist to being an entrepreneur was also not the norm. And they realized that in some environments, it was totally possible. Uh, so there's a very strong imprint, I think, around the world of the MIT spirit on deep tech. So people tend to talk more about Silicon Valley, but maybe the original science entrepreneur is a lot associated with uh, with the Boston ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's a tremendous reputation for MIT as this institution for research, for invention and discovery. And some of the best engineering talent is all trained and has its roots back at MIT. But what's less known is how practical all of that talent has been over the many decades, whether it's back through World War II and the early foundations for so much of the science we live with today. But even more recently, there's so many great companies that have come out of MIT. So whether it's Ginkgo Bioworks or even on the consumer side like Dropbox or LinkedIn, just so many great companies have been founded because the community has always focused on, well, how can this affect the real world? Silicon Valley is very good at rebranding and claiming companies as their own. Like, even if you remember that the original Facebook network was started in the Boston ecosystem at Harvard. So it's also quite interesting to see how the brand of an ecosystem can be cannibalizing a lot of things. But another thing that's interesting, maybe for people who are not uh, so familiar with MIT, is to understand a bit what's going on at MIT. To me, the first kind of mass market exposure of MIT tech is probably the Disney animation Big Hero 6. I had friends at MIT who told me that part of the characters and part of the science displayed with the robots and other things was actually technology that was being developed at the time at MIT, some other part at Carnegie Mellon. So what's going on there? As you mentioned Looking around your desk, wherever you are, if you're in your car, looking around your car, if you're running, whatever you have around you, that's probably a big part of the things that we use and integrate and, and collaborate with every day 
traces its suit back to MIT, whether it's the fundamental science behind artificial intelligence, whether it's wearables, or whether it's VR and AR, whether it's GPS, or things on life sciences, most of these things trace their roots back to MIT. Now, what's special about MIT as well, and, and as E14 Fund is concerned as well, is MIT Media Lab. Uh, and that's a lab that was created about 35 years ago. A number of founding faculty came together and said there needs to be a, a research lab that doesn't measure itself purely by the number of publications that we push into the world, by the impact we create on the world. And that means rather than the motor that drives researchers from publish or perish to demo or die, ultimately to deploy and now as well to impact. And so the Media Lab is the special place that actively promotes a unique and interdisciplinary culture. It goes beyond known boundaries and disciplines. It encourages the most an unconventional mixing and matching of uh, research areas that seem different and distinct at the surface, but really has a, you can create a lot of interesting things when you, when, you, when you start working in between those fields. And the other thing that's really unique about the Media Lab is its funding model. Its funding doesn't come from tuition or doesn't come from endowment. It comes from industries. And so today, there's about 90 of the largest corporates in the world that have a membership fee with the Media Lab. In return, they interact with the science, they work with collaborators, and they get a glimpse of the, of the future. That's how Lego Mindstorm was built. That's how many other products as well in the world kind of saw the light of day is through this collaboration between industry and, and scientists. And this is where scientists also get exposure to the industry. It doesn't, it doesn't just go one way, it goes both ways. And the last bit about the Media Lab, it's organized under research groups. So you have about uh, 25 research groups today, a bit more than that. And these groups are run by faculty. And as a researcher, you apply to a particular group and you get interviewed almost like if you're applying to a, a job, but you're actually working in the, in the academic routes. So it is a place that prides itself on the high quality of research that really invents and pushes and things into the world like no one else does. But at the same time, it has its feet on the ground where it gets that feedback from industry, which is super unique for an academical place. Very practically speaking, one of the most fun things we get to do every year, it's gone virtual now, but twice a year, we have what we call member week, where that demo or die mantra, that culture is really made real. And so instead of just a paper where you don't have to prove out that you could actually build the thing that you're writing about, the lab has always had these demo days where the member companies would come and get lab updates and the PhDs and the master's students would be actually showing prototypes and all of their work was made real. Fast forward 35 years of this history, you can see across the whole alumni community, there's just this really deep sense of, well, thinking about something or writing about something is great. It's the start of the work, but making it real talking to the people that it will affect. Well, these are all the really basic ingredients for great startups. Your fund is called E14 Fund, and E14 is associated with the Media Lab. That's right. It's the name of the building of the Media Lab. If you know MIT, the buildings are named East and West, and they go in circles. So you have E14, E15 is, E15 is the older building of the Media Lab. But we like to joke that retroactively, we force a nerdy joke into it. And if you flip E, it becomes like three. So in leak, it's uh, 314 <laughs> and it's pi. And also element 14 is silicon. Um, so it's a retroactive nerdy joke, but people from the MIT ecosystem recognize the, the, the name E14. I, actually, I remember visiting the MIT the first time I was looking for the, the building. So I typed M, uh, E14 and they gave me information about a light bulb because it's the standard of uh, the Edison 14 uh, light bulb standard. So there's also, also a link to fundamental innovation there. One more story. We'll add that to our list. It's worth noting uh, one thing. The Media Lab is focused on 
pushing science and, and, and working on some of these between and inventing fields, as the media box calls it, and anti-disciplinary research. E14 Fund is an independent structure that was set up in collaboration with the media lab, and it helps the science and those scientists and those uh, researchers that wish to take their work forward into the venture, or even sometimes they might have left 20, 30 years ago, but still on working on, on, on pushing the boundary. But again, to mention, to just trace some of the stuff back to the media lab, as Kevin mentioned, companies like LinkedIn, even on the consumer side, but things like the whole field of wearables, the whole field of virtual reality and augmented reality, uh, companies like Ginkgo Bioworks and Formlabs as well, all have, have faced in the media lab. So it's just the ingredients that make great scientists at the lab happen to also be the same ingredients that make a great founder in a startup. Can you tell a bit more about the structure of the fund? What kind of stage you invest in? Sure thing. So while the roots um, go back to a prototype programmatic experience for students back in 2013, we launched our first fund in 2017. It was a little bit less than $40 million. And as Habib was talking about, we support the entirety of the community with about one third of our companies spinning out research or having history of work that comes right out of the lab and the remainder uh, coming from alumni. So across that whole community, we tend to write checks of two types. What you might consider core or main check would be around a million dollar pre-seed check. So it's a substantial check, but you know our whole model is we know the work and we know the people behind these companies really well. Whether we known them while they've finished their last couple of years of their PhD or whether we've been tracking and talking with them as they've been workshopping a new idea, or they're thinking of spinning off, leaving, you know, Google or Facebook or whatever, we spend a lot of time with founders and help them. And so that points to the other kind of check we write, which is sometimes a company isn't quite ready to digest that, you know, really big pre-seed investment full of conviction. They're still formulating their plans. Maybe they're filing their first IP. So we'll do smaller checks as well, anywhere from 25,000 to 50,000 to 100,000 on very founder-friendly terms. You also shared it with MIT. It sounds like you have kind of a luxury as, a, as an investor that your deal flow is almost like captive deal flow. Uh, it sounds like you just need to walk around and pick what you like. Is that a reality? We think of ourselves as a fund who is first and foremost a community builder. We work very closely with the community to set up programs and events and interactions. And through the member week and through the, the funders of the lab and the, and the startups in our community. But also we end up helping and supporting scientists throughout their journey of potential startup creation. So for example, we end up meeting founders 11 months before we write a check. And that's not that they're 11 months on their startups. They might be still finishing their science. They might be working on the next thing if they have left MIT. And so we end up really supporting and nudging and, and, and helping the companies nudging in the direction that we think is the right one for venture scale. And so reputation becomes a much bigger part as well of the, of the picture. We really have to be careful about making sure that we are very truthful and authentic about our positioning and our story because we're working with a smaller community. Now, this community is one of the top scientists in the world, but we have to make sure as well that we're actually very much focused on that. I guess another challenge would be that because there's so much unusual research on so many domains covered, what catches your eye? How do you select the projects? We spend so much time getting to know the people and then the work. And, you know, because we can have this community building point of view on everything, and as we like to joke, it's never too early to talk to E14 Fund. So we can spend that time and really start to validate it. 
One of the things we do is we talk to other, you know, leading scientists and engineers in that field. We'll talk to perhaps the co-authors of the papers of the work. We'll talk to other experts, whether it's faculty or staff, people from the alumni community about that science. And then very, very importantly, what we'll do is we'll talk to potential customers. So whether they're the 90 member companies of the Media Lab, part of that research consortium that supports all the work, who might, by the way, be familiar with that scientist as, as well. But in any event, what we can do through these corporate relationships then is validate the market readiness as well as the science. And so we look for those signals. And back to that community building point, you know, because we have the full freedom of movement, we don't have to invest in every company from this community, but we can provide value. So if you're an early stage company, we've introduced you to six or seven of the world's biggest pharma companies, five or six of the biggest automaker suppliers, or, you know, some of the biggest supply chains in the world. Well, we're helping you even while we're doing our diligence and that, that kind of support that we help, which we think helps kind of earn the allocation, you know, earn the trust of founders that we're trying to support and we'd like to invest. But we're also, even in the cases where we pass, we're trying to provide some benefit to the community as a whole. Okay. To illustrate, could you talk about uh, maybe one or two of your recent investments to explain how you established the connection, what got your attention, how you supported the founder until you wrote a check, and then how you keep supporting? Maybe we'll actually give you two examples because one to, to illustrate the spinoff directly from the Media Lab, and another story, which is someone who might have left the lab 10, 20 years ago. And I'll start with the first one, which is a recent graduate. At the Media Lab, there's a group called Tangible Media, drawn by Professor Hiroshi Ichi. It's actually the lab where Minority Port, the gloves that went into that movie, oh. traced their roots into. It's even the, the body of work that Steve Jobs and Tim Cook quote as being the inspiration behind the iPhone uh, user interface. We call it the battle against the pixel empire. And one of the students there who spent their eight years, spent time also in industry before, has been, worried, has been thinking a lot about the future of manufacturing thinking about, you know, going to Shenzhen and seeing a factory floor and seeing how things work and then coming back to Boston and seeing the, the advancement of 3D printing and seeing the disconnect between the two of how one can actually integrate with the other and not just being for prototypers and hobbyists. Then he started building the body of work around both software, material science and hardware, replicating how the, the printing machine works roll to roll but on doing that through, through creating these functional textiles, very fine structures of head, feather or head-like structures using this novel printer and this novel software that he's built to do this, these fine prints at scale and passive resolution. And he was doing it at the Media Lab as a student. He came to us a couple of years before he graduated and he said, hey, uh, I think I might want to do a venture in this. I'm not sure, but could you help me brainstorm? And it's for sure, let's, let's think about that. And so with a series of interactions, we connected them with some of the member companies at the Media Lab. These are part of the corporate sponsors who actually give amazing feedback and said, well, how about this, not that? And maybe we can use it in this particular use case, some of the automotive companies, some of the, the furniture companies. And over time, he started to get more feedback from industry while he was still a PhD student on, on the use case of the technology. Came a time for graduation and decided to actually take this and build a company around. And then we wrote him a first very small check, the part of our fellowship program, a $50,000 check that just gives him enough money to get the next of the first few weeks for a few months, just you know, wrap his head around it. 
And over time, we end up moving that company from a fellowship into a core check. Now, today, it's moving into becoming how they call it the, the, the digital version of, of 3M. So it's building its own products or it's working with others. But it started with that first inspiration in that lab moving through, through different chapters. Getting early feedback from not only investors, but also some potential customers helped even to guide the research he was doing, I guess. Absolutely. In fact, the overwhelming majority of the investments we do are in companies who have a customer or interaction with a corporate. And again, it's that uniqueness of the media lab where you have that relationship that could lead into these discussions. Now, obviously, for every research that's done at the lab that becomes a startup, there are others that don't become a startup as well. It depends on the founders, it depends on the maturity. But for those that do become a startup, they have also that interaction with industry almost in their pocket before they get, they get started. So that's actually really important because in a way, there's a lot of startups that might be created while they shouldn't be and maybe should stay as a science project, an art project, but don't have immediate commercial application. And this early commercial interest validation helps to avoid probably a lot of uh, trouble from startups that might not ever find a market. In the previous conversation I had on a previous podcast from a founder in a biotech company, actually co-founded this company with Tim Liu, who's a biotech professor at MIT. He was saying that from his point of view, early validation, even if 90% of startups will eventually fail at some point, 90% is better than 99% if you let anybody start without checking the market first. So I guess you de-risk and you help people make better decisions this way as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. One of the important things that we think about in our interactions with MIT and with the lab is that there is a tremendous amount of fundamental science and invention, which doesn't need to be a scalable venture startup. And having the latitude for scientists and engineers at Media Lab and across MIT to pursue discovery, to pursue peer-reviewed science, to pursue invention, or to pursue, frankly, academic careers, nonprofit movements, lots of other modes to change the world or to make impact. That I think is something that we're really trying to always honor. But for the subset of companies for whom a venture model, for whom scaling, for whom that pace, that transition from, you know, a scientist to a founder makes the most sense, then we want to, as you say, validate the market readiness for it and then provide all the means across the whole ecosystem and across our experience to help those companies grow. Habib, you mentioned you had a second example, so I'm really curious to hear that one too. I'll let Calvin go through that since I mentioned the first one. Sure. So another example story of a company we've supported is called ThruWave. So ThruWave was founded by Matt Reynolds, and unlike G, who just recently graduated with his PhD, Matt finished his PhD in 2003, his third degree at MIT. So phenomenally trained engineer, actually across the community known as a wireless pioneer, and his research is well-read and respected um, by many, many people over the generations since. Matt was back on campus giving a talk to current students talking about, I think, career opportunities and uh, his own journey, when one of his friends in the faculty said, well, you should catch up with E14 Fund, our new vehicle to support emerging entrepreneurs. Matt, of course, had built and sold three wireless companies previously, so he wasn't a first-time founder, but he had been doing some work at his lab at University of Washington, where he had become full-time tenured faculty. And with that work, he was starting to think about his fourth company. And so it was really fortuitous timing where, you know, we were there talking with Matt, kind of workshopping this new idea 
from the science, which was all around millimeter wave and how, you know, the big body scanners that we have experienced as individuals at the airports, well, they're expensive, they're really big and bulky, and they're quite slow. Matt, with his PhDs at the lab, were spinning out technology that could basically make the, a module the size of an iPhone, orders of magnitude cheaper, that could function at industrial conveyor belt speed, so meters per second, and create then human-safe X-ray images of the contents of a box, of a tote, of a bag, could see past occlusion, could look inside of walls. So tons of exciting applications. But through that early brainstorming and workshopping with Matt, we were able to tap into the MIT network and find great e-commerce and offline retail customers, basically people who wanted to use that sensor module as the basis for supply chain qualification, analytics, and optimization that just was never possible before. And so we wrote the first outside check to help build the company, help Matt spin off officially from the University of Washington, and then now support two of the world's biggest companies with massive supply chains, and then use that as kind of social proof across the whole industry and see where there are other companies that have those same supply chain pressures, even or maybe sometimes because of all of the changes in behavior with the pandemic happening globally. But really, I think one interesting thing that we find as a pattern across many of our companies is, you know, ThruWave is a great example of, you know, working early to find a decoupling from just that hardware and that, 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 that real invention and differentiation around the IP into building you know, a, a moat of differentiated data that then can build services or machine learning, which was never before possible too. Yeah, that finding applications for technologies, often um, scientists are like, you know, having a hammer looking for nails, right? And uh, this exposure to industry players that you provide sounds like super precious to find those applications on first pilots. How diverse is the talent that goes through MIT because from the outside, it sounds like a very, you know, established traditional institution. Maybe all students look the same, but uh, when you go on campus, it's definitely not the same. And at Media Lab, I think it's even less the same. So can you tell us about the diversity of founders? We think about diversity and we look at the community of founders we've been able to work with. And basically it comes from the fact that MIT is a meritocracy and especially at Media Lab, where people are joining research groups based on the quality of their work, having spent time either at other research institutions or in corporate settings or even building startups. They're coming to the lab with demonstrations of their capabilities. And so as we all see in every facet of life, if you are basically just choosing people on their capabilities, well, then you get a broad diversity of ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, national origin, gender, sexual orientation. And so the lab itself over these 35 years has looked like the diversity of talent all over the world. And so E14 Fund similarly does. I believe the numbers are over 40% of our teams have a female co-founder. A majority of our companies have underrepresented minorities. We also have a tremendous amount of founders who do have you know, backgrounds as immigrants, the community of talent is global and isn't easily categorized. And so our founders are as well. It looks like the whole MIT environment also instills a particular mindset in people. When they join, they join based on uh, generally, as, as you said, technical uh, background on merits and projects, but then they develop other, other skill set and uh, other ambitions. So in recent conversation, there was this discussion that ideally 
the founder of a deep tech startup would have the science chops, but also storytelling and the right networks. How do you see your founders performing in that? And how do you help them uh, with those three aspects? I think uh, first it back saying while MIT is and the Fin Fund is doing better than others on diversity numbers, everyone has still a lot of work to go. So it's something that, that drives us a lot. And especially both ourselves being also from the minority communities is something that, that we often have experienced as well. And so in terms of our founders, I think we like talk about uh, scientist brain, founder brain. And as a scientist brain, you usually, as a scientist, you usually optimize for universality, you optimize for perfection, you optimize to, to and surrounding yourself with the most intelligent people are around you that you can find. As a founder, there's different ways you think about it. You don't think about universality, so you don't think about platforms, you think about a specific use case. You don't think about the smallest people being around you, you think about the most uh, proactive one, the hustlers, and you have different people for different trolls. And also, you're not just about you know being the smartest person in your field. Sometimes grit takes you much further away than intelligence. And so when we talk to founders, uh, we kind of help them push between these two boundaries. Uh, storytelling is something that fits in between both, specifically at the Media Lab, where you're not just given the task of creating research and thinking about the future, but you're also given the task of sharing that with the people around you. So we're kind of lucky that that exists. But with that said, it's an extremely important piece that we keep working with and hammering, especially that, you know, science early on is not made to solve a, to build a startup or not made to solve a pain point in an industry, is made to, to think about the future 30 years from now. What could look what could the future look like in 30 years from now? And then startups about how can we execute on that the next five years? So there's a disconnect that sometimes happen and it's, it's really important uh, we help the founders move in between their two brains. So you can see actually the evolution of a PhD candidate from the early years to the end of the years to becoming a founder, they're a completely different human being, at least you know, as, as far as the leader is concerned. I'll give an example of um, one company that, that is working out and maybe we'll go through others that hasn't worked out later on. And the founder, she's a physicist by background and spent time at, at MIT with Joe Paradiso, who's known of being one of the fathers of wearables, among others. At the lab, she's been working on embedding electronics into textile, then at some point built and sold the company through the 100K competition at MIT, actually, and she sold that to Nest. And then afterwards built her own consulting firm where people like Google would hire her to do these very fancy projects on embedding electronics into textile and other large companies. And then she was able to build this sensor that could look into the muscle body and the function of the joint function in a very accurate, uh, high resolution way. And so early on, the main premise was like, what can I do with this technology? I could put them on, 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 a, on a person's body and perhaps I can actually record your movement in 3D with high accuracy. Or perhaps I can give you all the micro movements of your body that actually make you a better athlete or not. And perhaps you can copy Michael Jordan and have the best shot in the world. As she was talking to the industry and has evolved from mapping your movements into 3D to, to helping athletes get better, to making you as an athlete, over time, it turns out that there's a huge pain point for the industry in scoring injury. So today, one out of two Americans have a musculoskeletal health injury. Uh, we go to doctors, we go to physical therapists, and there's a whole journey of going to MRIs and getting therapy, and maybe it's not working, it's very tedious, it's, it's very expensive. But what if actually I can give you a score that's objective and it's based on science? I can give you the angles of your hip, the balance that you have, the flexibility. And that score actually can work on improving or not 
in a very confined kind of defined set of parameters. And so today what, what they end up building and it's actually deployed is the first way of accurately with high precision and actually also affordably measure your injury score. So whether you got into an accident or whether you're driving or whether you're someone who works on a factory floor and got injured at work, we need that score so that we can help you know, remove all the, the waste that happens in the musculoskeletal health treatment. So that's a company that moved a lot. The founder herself has moved also through the journey. And today she's an expert in her space. People reach out to her from all the world to collaborate and co-publish papers, starting from a physicist into what she is today as well. Building on what Habib shared, we absolutely love when we can be a part of that journey for the founders. There's a re- reputation that you know these deep scientists, the founders shouldn't be the CEO. Maybe they could be CTO or chief scientist, but they don't have the chops to really grow into full management leadership. But what we found with examples like Nanway from Figure 8 is that some of these best scientists or engineers, when they can transition to start thinking about building their company as an engineering problem or as a systems problem, then they tackle you know everything from culture or team or sales process with that same mentality that they trained for at MIT. And then it's a great way to build a company. So they can use their very analytical mind for any business process. That's right. At SOSV, we do over 100 investments every year in biotech, hardware, and other fields. Some of the biggest risk is not the technology, but rather around setting goals, management, working with co-founders. Do you see similar challenges in your portfolio? There's a few different challenges. One, you have the founder who had built and sold companies and is experienced, and this is typically someone that, you know, have maybe left to graduate about 10, 20 years ago. And then you have others who are recent scientists and struggling from the move of being working with your PI at MIT, uh, working on publishing papers, and now having to run teams and hire and fire and, and think about all the ups and downs. And that's tough for everyone, but there's also a contrast between a scientist and a founder. And so what we end up preparing is the, the latter into getting ready for that earlier. So as we mentioned earlier, we end up uh, meeting and knowing people sometimes a year, often even more than that, especially the scientists, working with them. And so we end up having this advice. It's always great to get mentorship advice from from people. But in our case, we're very much invested in giving you the best advice because we would love if that scientist becomes a founder. So it's almost investing in what a company we might or might not invest in two, three years down the line. So we end up really working with founders, thinking about how they can find a co-founder early, how they can think about the different touch points that they have to work with in industries so that to find the right business case for them, how they should think about their fundraise and starting building that network, seeking advice from the right VC so that when the time comes, they can actually ask for money. But also just you know think about the storytelling and all of that, that that's around them as well. So all of this stuff, we're lucky that we, we work with them early on. Obviously, it's still a challenge and it's something that, that we've worked with and with different tools in our, in our pocket, especially with the networks that we've built over time, whether it's through the corporates, whether it's through the alumni network, whether throughout it's our own network that we're building um, in deep tech support companies. But I think uh, overall, you know, it's it's that transition that we try to uh, catch it early on that, that helps us push the company in the right direction once they spin off. What do you feel differentiates the best performing founders from the worst performing founders you've come across? What differentiates is this capacity to learn. You know, even if it's their fourth startup, like Matt from ThruWave, or it's their first startup like GFA with OPT Industries, people who embrace the challenge in company building 
people who embrace a new sector, a new industry where they're having to figure out how to navigate the bureaucracy of these big、um, e-commerce companies, how that sales process works may be different than when they've sold to you know third-party logistics in the past. So there's lots of nuances to each company building experience, and so. Who is it who can really embrace that, tackle that with pace, and learn and develop quickly? You know, with our portfolio, we always talk about taking risks, of course, and we say then make new mistakes. So you know, push your boundaries, try new things. You know, obviously double down on the things that are working well, but take those risks and then learn by making mistakes. That also、mm-hmm. differentiates a deep tech founder is the ability to take a step back. And look at the future and see ten, twenty, thirty years from now the trends. You know, reimagine how supply chain should ultimately end up at a big picture, and then understand all the parameters that comes into play to make it such that it's going to go in that direction. Scientifically speaking, and also from capabilities of actually getting there. But two is just put your head down and execute. And it's you know having these two capabilities at once is where we find the overperforming founders have. So seeing the future and seeing pragmatically what to do right now that the market can bear and that the technology can deliver. One interesting question would be: so tell me what's the most insightful thing you've you've learned last week, and tell me what's the most insightful thing you've learned last year. And it's just a, a small indication if you meet someone for the first time for you to see how they think from a big picture and how they think from a micro picture, and it's the ability of of juggling both in a smooth way that is great. Another question I had was around how you work with other investors. We work with、uh, a lot of other deep tech investors over recent years. Even at the bigger generalist funds, there seem to be a handful of partners who will look at and do deep tech investing as well. It's a little bit unidirectional in that. You know, we are very narrowly focused on this amazing community.、But、usually, when GPs are talking to other GPs, it's like, okay, I give you some deal flow, you give me some deal flow, we can collaborate on deals. But you know, because we're so narrowly focused, usually we're sharing MIT-founded companies with others, and it's less frequent that people pass them in our direction. But certainly, if anyone out there is listening and has met MIT founders, we'd love to help those companies and potentially invest. But so often the collaboration then is that next level where it's either us taking an early pre-seed company, helping put together a syndicate, helping get follow-on financing, or a lot of times it's that collaboration around new technologies or new sectors that are being disrupted by those technologies. Because we have the relationships with the corporates who sponsor the lab and who are engaged with MIT, you know, hundreds of other companies beyond the the research consortium, we're often getting asked, "What are the trends that are affecting supply chain?" So, you know,、uh, a friend at another firm was just asking us yesterday about our point of view on synthetic data and how that might inform training models. There's a lot of kind of information flow we get that can be helpful directly. To investment decisions, but also to portfolio companies for founders or for other investors. I understand because you're very early stage、uh, investors that you mostly put together syndicate and、uh, help your companies raise the next round. And I guess that's also like part of the reason you, Calvin,、uh, are based in Silicon Valley, while Habib is、uh, the nexus of MIT, right? 
Exactly. So, you know, at the early days when we were putting together our first fund about three or four years ago, we thought about putting all of us in Cambridge, right on campus, right at the heart of where we see a, a small majority of our companies, but the majority nonetheless. But what we found is that the alumni community from MIT, where, you know, we have about two thirds of our investments are from people who've left the lab many years ago. The community here in the Bay Area, where I'm based, is phenomenal, is super active, is very collaborative. So we do see it as a place where a lot of great companies are being built and a lot of early stage founders that we can support are built. But then, as you rightly note, like putting together investment syndicates, finding customers, finding partners, finding channel. There's a lot of other collaboration. So, you know, under normal travel conditions, I spend about one week out of my month in Boston with Habib, but then otherwise the majority of my time here in, on the West Coast. The deep tech sector is something that's been active for decades now in Boston on the MIT, but is uh, relatively nascent in the investment community. As you mentioned, there's uh, not that many funds that are specialists. Uh, there's some new funds or some partners that are starting to embrace it. But in a way, deep tech today feels almost like the internet in the, the mid 90s or late 90s. What do you think could be done to like, further stimulate the investment in that sector? People don't invest in deep tech because they think it's hard and because it scares them. And I think there's two things why they don't do that. One is they think it's capital intensive. They think it requires a lot of money to take a company and get it to scale. And therefore it's easier to invest in SaaS companies or consumer tech. And two, it's hard to do a proper due diligence. So to the extent where we can work on these two things, we can make it much easier. So on the first one, on the capital intensity, first is just raising awareness. The companies that we shared today on this podcast are companies that are extremely capital efficient. They've actually pushed their way through dilutive and non-dilutive funding. In fact, we have so much non-dilutive funding for, for deep tech startups, much more than, than any, any other. In fact, sometimes they become even more, more capital efficient for equity investors. And then the second thing is, you know, these companies are going after traditional industries uh, that are here to stay. Uh, during the pandemic, we've seen actually a lot of our companies getting an uptick in, in demand. And these are companies going after supply chain, manufacturing, delivery, healthcare. And this is because they are solving real problems going after boring industries. Uh, and so while deep tech has this connotation of being science, it's not science for the sake of science. It's science to solve a, a big fundamental problem. The second thing is on the due diligence, you know, it, it is hard and will continue to be hard. But at the end of the day, Calvin and I are not experts in every industry we invest in. We've built a very strong network around us. And now we're lucky because in collaboration with MIT, we can ask faculties or ask scientists and we can get a view or we can get an early collaboration with a scientist that can give us more insight into an industry. But it also takes effort and time. And I think it's the willingness of investors and GPs to get their hands dirty, to actually put themselves in a completely uncomfortable situation of trying to learn a new industry is something that honestly is going to have to happen because deep tech companies, as you said, is the next wave of amazing, large, impactful companies. And Boston has been doing it for a few years, but only in the past five years that you see an, an extreme acceleration of that. And now we're going to see it even further, especially when you think about Symbio and even space tech and obviously supply chain and logistics is something that has been going on for a while. Your point around the capital efficiency, we see that a lot also, uh, particularly with our hardware investments, occasionally with our biotech investments, that it tends to be actually way cheaper than people think and sometimes actually way cheaper than launching a, a SaaS or marketplace uh, for which you need to acquire users for a lot of money and also develop technology that's also not cheap uh, with a, a lot of people. Whereas uh, in some cases, 
when you have strong science, the value is a lot in the science and you don't need that very many people to actually uh, execute on it. Uh, the other aspect you talked about, uh, the due diligence aspect, I think a lot of investors have grown the habit of kind of uh, being able to forge their own opinion about almost anything in software. Whereas in a way, deep tech takes you back to a more humble position where you realize you don't know and you have to rely on other people and you have to kind of level up your knowledge. And that's somewhat uncomfortable when you used to know, <laughs> particularly with uh, many of the, the SaaS plays, uh, the metrics are very well known and it's easier to recognize. So the only analysis to do is more about kind of market demand, but not so much around the, the metrics and the technology. So yeah, that's probably a bit a change and I just like like yourself I hope and at SOSV we hope that more people realize that uh, the real world is here to stay and that deep tech uh, is the best way to interact and improve on it so maybe to wrap up our, our conversation what do you get inspiration from yeah well two things one is I'm from Lebanon originally I grew up in the 80s and 90s uh, and where there was civil wars and continues to be unrest and a lot of issues. And if you follow the news lately, Lebanon is going through a very, very tough time today with more of 40% uh, of its population uh, are refugees, uh, adding pressure. But over time, the, cor the corrupt government has all pushed that it's almost at the brinks of economic collapse. But still yet, people find a way to be resilient, find a way to survive. I talk to my parents and my friends and they're just continuing push through. And that, you know, just gives me hope in the ingenuity of humans. We are so adaptive by nature and we are so creative and so resilient. And only when we get forced into being resilient and actually creativity emerges. We've seen that happen in the pandemic in many communities, but you know, having been brought up in that environment, I can see that firsthand. So that, you know, that's one is, is just being hopeful of the future of humanity. The second thing that keeps me very intellectually stimulated is honestly just walking around the hallways of MIT and hanging out with scientists. This one particular scientist, uh, I'm gonna give a shout out to Neo, who is working at Fluid Interfaces at the Media Lab. Uh, Fluid Interfaces is one of the groups that you can basically point and say, this is where VR and R were invented. This is where a lot of interesting uh, inventions around the, the personal devices and of ourselves continue to be invented. Neo uh, is obsessed with mapping his memory. He has designed this ECG that you put on your brain and that's measuring all your brain waves at the same time that he's using another product by another group at the media lab called Empatica to measure his emotions and has this camera on his chest, walks around and has this algorithm that, that is collecting every single memory in, in the day. Then when he goes back home, he compiles it, puts it all in his algorithm that really it, it just throws away the things where his emotions were more neutral, his brain waves were just not as active and that skips the very acute part. So basically just condensing 24 hours in a few minutes. And then he showed me a movie through his own eyes. If you've seen the movie Riplash, which is an amazing movie around drums and that uh, happens yep. in Boston, it's really intense in some parts of it. And I watch it through his eyes basically in two minutes as he put this on him and he compresses emotions. It's actually super interesting. It triggers your brain in a way where you remember things very, very quickly. And this is the person, by the, this is not his research. This is just a side project that he's doing on top of his research. And when you meet people like him, and Neo is originally from Iran, 
And the way he got out to, to Oxford first and to MIT is through fighting to writing, a, publishing a paper on, on black holes when he was at, in high school, got him a fellowship in Oxford and moved to MIT. And like that, there are so many neos that are that exist out there. And by the way, it infuriates me today to read that that administration is going to kick students out of the country if you can't take a physical course. It's, it's mind-boggling to see that we're actually putting these top scientists that are in this country at risk of leaving the country where they're amazing. I really hope that gets reverted. But going back to Neo, that's is super inspiring. And you see people all moving through personal stories, bringing them to their place and trying to like kind of explode their creativity through what they have at the media lab. This sounds super cool. That was a really, really interesting story and experiment. As much as we rationalize our lives, we're very much emotional, like moist robots. And the emotion part of our life is, in a way, what we live for. So getting a kind of a condensed version, like a video clip, you just need to put it to music, I guess. Uh, how about you, Calvin? What inspires you? It's tough to follow Habib's answer, but uh, I think it's a great example of one of the things that ex inspires me which is getting to work with, you know, a dear close friend of mine and the kind of passion and sense of purpose that Habib talking about the researchers is also what we aspire to with the fund. And so, you know, how we think about building companies, helping founders, you can see in Habib's answer too. We have been really fortunate over these last three years of fund one and seen such commitment from our founders, such a demonstration of human potential. And it's really inspiring to see as our founders grow and build not just solutions to their customer problems, and that's fantastic, and that's where the economic value is built, but as they build teams and the organizational culture. I find that just really inspiring that, you know, as challenging as building a company is, as irrational as it may be to risk our personal, uh, professional uh, well-being on the prospects of a startup. It's just really inspiring to see people pursue that with such vigor. I agree. Inspiration can come from, you know, strange personal interests, like in the, the case Habib mentioned, or struggle and the resilience, like Habib's family and the people of Lebanon in general, but also the resilience of founders and their motivation and enthusiasm and the organizations they build around all of that. Well, guys, thank you a lot for your time. And I hope that uh, you will find a, a lot more exciting companies to make the world a better place. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for listening. To know more about the E14 Fund, the Media Lab, Habib or Calvin, check their website or Twitter. Subscribe now for future episodes. Follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and at SOSV or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet. Thank you.